Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It is Friday, August 5th, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So you are with us today from Washington, D.C., Andrew, where the parties in the Department of Justice suit to block Penguin Random House's acquisition of rival Big Five publisher Simon & Schuster have converged on a federal courthouse. Trial started this week on Monday, and we'll get into all the details. We'll remind people that in November 2020, the PRH... SNS merger immediately raised the possibility that the U.S. Department of Justice would seek to block it on antitrust grounds. Indeed, on November 2nd, 2021, the U.S. Department of Justice did file a complaint in district court for D.C. to prevent the proposed acquisition. At the time, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland said if the world's largest book publisher is permitted to acquire one of its biggest rivals, it will have an unprecedented control over this important industry. That control, the government has asserted, would allow PRH to exert outsized influence over which books are published in the United States and how much authors are paid for the work. So that's the background, Andrew Albanese, and you are reporting daily from the courthouse in PW, online at publishersweekly.com. You tell us there were no surprises in the opening arguments, so let's review the testimony so far, and it's been pretty interesting. Michael Peach, Hachette Book Group CEO, took the stand first for the government. He gave a lecture in Publishing 101, with a concentration in the competition for book rights, especially over advances. Yeah, and you know, it has been fairly interesting, but I should point out one thing about this trial, too, and that is it is, after all, a trial. I think that we've gotten a lot of media attention about this case. It's been focused on in many outlets as sort of a trial of the century for the book business. But as you well know, Chris, having you know talked about these cases forever, once you get into the trial, it can be really tedious. And you know, for all of the interesting stuff that has come out through the testimony so far, I would remind listeners that most of this is just painfully boring stuff. We're sitting on hard benches in a courtroom listening to these tiny little tidbits of information being pulled out of witnesses, uh, sometimes witnesses that are not excited to be there. One such witness was clearly Michael Peach from the Hachette Book Group. He was the government's first witness, and he clearly was not happy about having to testify in court. It's never an enjoyable experience. And basically, as the government's first witness, Peach was sort of tasked with giving the court sort of a publishing 101, as you mentioned, right? And let me tell you, it was quite a nuts and bolts education. At one point, the government attorney asked uh, Michael Peach to tell the court what printing is. You know, I think we have a pretty good idea of how printing works, but nevertheless, it needed to get in the record. And the reason why this all needs to get into the record is because the government is trying to prove that competition in the market for book rights is going to be impacted by this merger. And in order to make that assumption, they brick by brick have to tell the court and show the court exactly how books are acquired. So in his testimony, Michael Peach had to talk about everything in the publishing business, how auctions are run, how book rights are acquired, how publishers compete, like who they compete against. And, you know, for those of us who are in the publishing business, it was, you know, quite remedial. There wasn't a lot of interesting stuff. And it was remarkable how difficult it is to even get one big five CEO 
to admit something that seems pretty obvious, which is that the big five publishers pretty much compete exclusively with one another for best-selling books. On cross-examination, Andrew Peach admitted he'd like to see parent company Hachette leave bid on Simon & Schuster, even though the company did not do so in 2020. So I guess we have to ask, he's only against consolidation in the industry if his house isn't involved? Yeah, that was a really interesting point in the testimony and actually pretty key uh, to the case, I'd point out. Um, And it was actually a moment where the defense kind of walked into a punch there and Peach kind of delivered it pretty strongly. And And I'll explain why, because... Yes, I think every major publisher would be interested in acquiring Simon & Schuster. And Peach said this on the stand. Simon & Schuster is an excellent publisher. They're a fantastic publisher, and everyone would be delighted to have Simon & Schuster be part of their company. Now, we didn't know that Hachette didn't make a bid on Simon & Schuster. We know that Hachette was interested in making a bid on Simon & Schuster, uh, but that didn't actually come to fruition despite Peach wanting that to happen. Now, Peach did admit on the stand that should Simon & Schuster come on the block again, if this deal is, you know, is spiked and not able to go through, he would very much push uh, his parent company, Hachette Leave, to make the acquisition. Peach would love to have Simon & Schuster be part of his portfolio if indeed he was the man that was tapped to run it. And sensing on that, I think you, know, you get a sense that the defense is trying to make that case, too, that you know, you're trying to block the deal because you really want to go in and have a chance to run this company. And you know, Dan Petricelli, who's the lead defense attorney for, for Penguin Random House, you know, made this point to Peach. He's like, so exactly as you said, Chris, you're, you're, you're not opposed to a 5-4 merger. That is the big five coming down to the big four. And Peach tagged him. Because, you know, this case is not about a five to four merger piece that this case is about creating one, quote, super dominant firm that just towers above all the rest. And this is really key. This is the government's main opposition here. It's not that we're going to have a big five down to a big four, because if any of the other publishers had acquired uh, Simon & Schuster or won the bid to acquire Simon & Schuster, I doubt we would be in court right now. The issue here is the size of Penguin Random House. Already the largest trade publisher by a wide margin, if they acquire Simon & Schuster, they would absolutely tower over all their competitors. A point the government makes in its briefs. Tuesday, day two, the highlight was testimony by Simon & Schuster CEO Jonathan Karp, who proceeded to joust with Department of Justice Attorney Jeff Vernon. Who scored the most points in that exchange? You know, really hard to tell because both sides were able to tell their stories. Right on cross examination, John Carp was able to sort of get his main narrative out there, which is that, you know, we compete against everyone for books. But you know, the main thrust of having John Carp on the stand was trying to get him to acknowledge that, as Michael Peach did, that Simon and Schuster competes mainly with the other big five publishers for bestsellers, but also to sort of acknowledge that Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster compete against each other, head-to-head for a lot of books. And in doing so, the government ran down a whole litany of instances when Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster were the last bidders, and how that competition really ratcheted up the author advance. Simon & Schuster won some of those books, they lost some of those books, but in every case, the author's advance went up. At the same time, Carp didn't give an inch on any of that. You know, he basically, every time he had a chance, he equivocated and said, look, it could have been anybody. We don't know who we're bidding against until the auction is over lots of times. Um, He stressed to the court that we, the only thing that governs how much we bid on a book is our own internal analysis, how much we're willing to spend for it. 
And, you know, to a degree, he has a point, and that is true. But at the same time, it's just a matter of logic and common sense that if you have more bidders in an auction, you're going to have more competition. And it's a point that Judge Pan actually interjected from the bench. Now, because this is a bench trial, Judge Florence Pan can actually ask questions directly of the witnesses. And I'll have to, I have to say, some of the best questions so far have been asked by Judge Pan. And I'll give you an example. At one point in John Carp's testimony, he basically was making the point that just because we spend a lot of money, just because we have a big advance on a book, that doesn't guarantee that it's going to be a top-selling book. Books they pay a lot of money for flop all the time. But Judge Pan wasn't having it. She stopped right there and said, wait a minute, you're telling me if you invest a lot of resources, millions of dollars in a book, you're not going to work a little harder to market that book? And, you know, Carp was still equivocal. He was like, you know, we might feel a little pressure, but lots of times people in our company don't even know how much we paid for a book, which I also found a little hard because clearly the sales reps would notice that, you know, there's a 250000 printing for a title and maybe try to sell it a little harder. But, you know, this is the kind of give and take that we're seeing on the stand here. The, the, the government is trying to brick by brick lay the foundation that there is robust competition between the big five publishers and especially between Simon & Schuster and Penguin Random House. And the executives, you know, from inside and outside the companies are just not giving that up without a fight. As you watched his testimony, Andrew, did it seem that John Carp might be having difficulty remembering <laughs> what he had said in previous depositions? <laughs> yes, I can tell you've, re you've read the coverage indeed. So when he took the stand, Judge Pan remarked that he carried, you know, that he had with him an impressive binder. You know, and that binder contained his deposition, which at one point, you know, the, they, it was noted that it was a 14-hour deposition. And it, it was an impressive binder. It was a huge amount of information that was clearly gone over. And throughout, Jonathan Karp was making, you know, there were at least four instances that I counted when Karp made a statement on the stand that the government impeached, that they basically went back and pointed him out to his testimony where he said something to the contrary. At one point, Karp even remarked that, you know, you seem to have a lot of instances of me saying things that I can't remember. You can excuse Jonathan Karp if he doesn't remember everything he said in a 14-hour in a deposition. But at the same time, some of the things that he was tripping over seemed to be fairly obvious points. The court has also heard from a freelance writer, best-selling horror novelist Stephen King. He was testifying as a witness for the government and was, in effect, taking the stand against his own publisher. So how did King explain that? Yeah, that was a terrific, that was the most fun we've had in the trial, and probably the only fun we're going to have in the trial, because it's going to get really dry going forward. But Stephen King injected a little star power. Uh, he testified on, on Tuesday morning. Judge Florence Pan clearly really enjoyed having him there. Uh, she asked him a couple of questions uh, herself. So what did Stephen King really say on the stand? Well, if this was an interview on TV, it would have been terrific. He talked about his publishing career, how he sold, without an agent, his first two books to Doubleday, Carrie and Salem's Lot, both of which were huge bestsellers for very modest advances. I think he got $2,500 for Carrie. Uh, I think this was in the 70s when that book was, was first published. And, you know, he just kind of modestly was going about his business until he realized after a couple of bestsellers that maybe he had a little more leverage. And he hadn't had a literary agent until that point. So he eventually got an agent, Kirby McCauley. And he told this really funny story about going to lunch with a gentleman named Robert Banker, who was an executive at Doubleday at the time, and presenting Mr. Banker with an offer. $2 million for a multi-book deal, to which Banker laughed 
King said, and left the restaurant. <laughs> well, the rest is history. Elaine Coster, a new American library, picked up the rights to Stephen King's books, sold hardcover rights to Viking, and 60 bestsellers later, uh, here we are. So why was King in court? Well, basically, Stephen King came to court because he feels consolidation is bad in publishing. He recalled the days when there was a ton of bidders for books out there and that that competition, you know, gave writers more places to publish. It gave them more opportunities to earn paychecks. And he just really wanted to go on record against consolidation, even against the consolidation of his own publisher. As you know, uh, he's published by Scribner, which is a division of Simon and Schuster. You know, he just does not want to see the publishing industry consolidate any further. At the same time, he noted that there's also a gold rush for writing now because of the streaming networks, right? He's noting that a lot of writers are finding that they're able to write treatment for Hollywood. So that kind of cut against the argument that he was making. Sure, you know, the competition is 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 lessening for book rights, but there's more work for writers. And eventually you think that that would force advances to go up if publishers don't want to lose their writers to Hollywood. But the most telling part of Stephen King's appearance was the cross-examination. Uh, Daniel Petricelli, to great effect, walked up to the podium and said, Mr. King, I would love to have a cup of coffee with you someday and talk about your glorious career, but I have no questions for you today, and dismissed him without asking a question. And that, to me, was a huge indicator, and I think to most court observers, that Stephen King really did not advance the government's case in any meaningful way. And by just, you know, saying a nice thing and turning him aside, I, I think that Petrocelli did a great job of disposing of King's testimony. It is early days, of course, Andrew, and testimony continues in that D.C. courthouse you've been in for the last few days. But I'd like to ask you about the general sense you're getting of just how the government is doing. They are trying to prove what is something of an unusual antitrust case. Yeah, that's right. And I think that is a really important point to keep track of here. And, you know, I, we talked about it a bit on this podcast before, but the government's case is this monopsony case, right? You're looking at people in the industry and people outside the industry look at Penguin Random House as this huge company about to get bigger. And they think, oh, well, this simply cannot be, right? This company obviously is anti-competitive given this size. But the challenge here is that the government is trying to prove that there is harm in a small number of authors' advances. They're not going after like the big obvious monopoly case here. And frankly, it's a smart call because that just isn't there. You know, there, there really would be no opportunity for the government to prove a consumer injury from the size of Penguin Random House and Simon and & Schuster. And for a simple reason, book prices are probably not going up. Book prices are probably already as high as they're ever going to be, right? They're already price like luxury goods for most people. Hardcovers can run $35, $40. On the other hand, it's possible that Penguin Random House can ex exert this outsized influence in the way it treats its authors. And that's what the government is going after here. They're trying to show the court that you know Penguin Random House, in this tiny little section of the market, which happens to be as 2% of books, the government said, but it's a significantly larger part of their income, these bestsellers, trying to show that the company will have outsized influence and decrease author advances here. And that requires a tedious, brick-by-brick -brick education of the court in terms of how publishing works. My sense is that they're doing a good job building the foundation, giving the judge a foundation to understand how publishing works so that they can show that there is that injury. 
And it's actually a smart approach for the government because if they can prove, even in the small segment of the market, that there's an injury, they win the case. Now, where it's going to get tough for them is when Daniel Petricelli and the defense starts chipping away at that foundation next week. And Daniel Petricelli has already proven himself a master at, at chipping away at cases. And he's got plenty of room to maneuver when it comes to confusing the judge and bringing up counter arguments about the idiosyncrasies of how publishing works. And publishing is not your standard industry, right? The way author bids work and the way relationships function in, there, there's a lot of room for Petrocelli to, to take apart the government's foundation once it's built. But so far, I would say, as boring and as tedious as it's all been, the government is on track to put forth a case that I think has a pretty strong chance of winning. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on the next podcast from CCC, from the invention of the player piano to the creation of the smartphone, copyright and technology have played a seemingly endless game of capture the flag. The upcoming Copyright and Technology Conference in New York on Tuesday, September 13th, plants both of those flags firmly at Fordham University School of Law. Bill Rosenblatt is the program chair and co-producer. It's been too long. Uh, the Copyright Society had its first in-person annual meeting since the before times back in June, and it was just so wonderful to see everybody. Um, it's it's going to be great. We're actually going to be hybrid. There will be options to attend by streaming, but uh, we are really focused on the in-person aspect of, of the conference. Tag, you're it. Copyright and Technology 2022, coming on the next CCC podcast. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts. And please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening to this Velocity of Content podcast from CCC.